Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Coolangatta podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us for our Advent series. Advent is not merely a time where we celebrate Christmas and the birth of Christ, but rather a moment where we eagerly anticipate the return of our King. This series aims to use Old Testament prophecies to remind us of the good news of not only Jesus' birth, but His reign and the moment He'll come again. To find out more about our Christmas services, head to church.nu forward slash Christmas. But for now, enjoy the message. It's such a good time to gather around the Word of God week in and week out. How are we all doing this morning? Come on. I honestly did not think I'd get much of a reply. I'm so, so stoked that I did. Hey, if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and open it up. We're going to go to the book of Matthew. We're going to start in chapter one. Uh, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, so it's not too hard to find. And whilst you turn there, if you haven't met me before, my name is David Skembri, and I get the joy of being one of the pastors here at uh, New Life Kulangata. And today we are launching our Advent series, our Christmas series. And it's a series where we intend to examine the story of Jesus, right? The, the story of how Jesus was savior, born a human, God incarnate, who came to rescue and redeem and restore all humanity through sacrifice. And our question we want to ask was, did did God just wake up one morning and go, huh, that's not too bad an idea. I'm going to tack that onto the end and call it the New Testament. Can't wait. Or, Or was this something that he had planned from everlasting to everlasting? Was this part of his eternal plan through it all? Was God always intending Jesus? And obviously we know the answer is yes, but we want to explore that through the Old Testament and see why the Old Testament is still, to this day, so important for our personal faiths and the way we engage and experience the life, promise, and hope of Jesus. So we're going to go through the uh, major themes of the gospel, that is uh, love, peace, joy, and hope. And we're going to go through those and take a real good look about how they, how they are intrinsically embedded into the whole narrative of scripture. And today I get the joy of starting with love. If you didn't hear, I got married about three months ago, so I was the obvious choice for the topic. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I know. Well, serving a clap. Thank you. I did it. Um, <laughs> but hey, would you dive into the scripture with me? And uh, we're going to read Matthew chapter one. We're going to read from verse 20. It says this, but after he had considered this, he being Joseph, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Would you join with me in prayer? Almighty God, I thank you that this is who you are, Emmanuel, the God with us, that this morning you have been with us, but not just as we gather in church, but throughout our lives, you perpetually advance towards us to do life beside us, to accompany us, to never leave us nor forsake us. And I just, I just thank you this morning. We turn our eyes and our affections back towards you, God, the Emmanuel, and we praise you that though doubt and accusation may come to try and rob us of the peace we have in your promise, we're reminded that, God, you are who you say you are, that you are present, 
that you have a good purpose this morning. And we may come this morning with a great expectation that you will unveil your goodness to us, Lord. And so, holy God, we just thank you. Spirit of God, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you. And in your beautiful and perfect name, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 If you are, has anyone here ever missed out on something in life because you decided not to take it up because it just seemed too good to be true? And so you just you said no. Anyone? No one. Wow, just me. All righty. Oh, come on. Yes, we got someone. <laughs> um, hey, many years ago, I was working in a pharmacy. Uh, not as a pharmacist, I'm not qualified for that, but I was working as a pharmacy assistant, which is kind of like a fancy t- title for a checkout chick who works in a pharmacy, and I was really good at it. Um, and uh, whilst I was working there, every month we would have a catalogue come out, and on the back of the catalogue, if you spent $30, which isn't very much money to spend, if you spend $30 or more, you get a free gift. And this free gift could sometimes be something really boring, like a full pack of bars of soap for two bucks or something, and we'll give that to you for free. But sometimes we had specials that were like $15 or $20 of value, which when you're only spending $30, that's a pretty good gift. Uh, and it could be like a laundry detergent or you know, a cleaning product or something random and wild, something else, right? But... What I noticed was, was that as we gave these products out, as we suggested and encouraged people that they got free gifts, I was shocked day in and day out for five years how hard it was to get some people to take this gift. More often than not, instead of them going, oh, wow, that's so nice, thank you, they would go, what's the catch? What are you saying about me? Think I need that? You know, and it was always so hard. And so I tried a whole multitude of things to try and get these things to move. We moved all of these free products to the front. So all they had to do was when I said, grab it, they just turned around and, and, and grabbed it, and, and that was it. And they still didn't do it. And so I, I actually brought them behind the counter, and I would say, hey, you get this for free. Would you like it? They still wouldn't accept it. And, and over and over again, I kept getting this, this, this repeated, repeated claim, uh, a cry, hey, for free? Nah, that seems too good to be true. There's got to be a catch. Now, we're not asking for their personal info. So, I mean, you know, it's not like we're actually even doing anything. We were one of those unique ones that just gave something out for free. But it just seemed like the harder I tried to give something out, the more sus, the more cautious, the more difficult it was for people to accept it. I wonder whether we do the same thing with God's promises in Scripture sometimes. Like when we read before this prophecy of Isaiah that was given some 700 years before this text happened, before Jesus was born, and we're witnessing it being fulfilled in front of them, this promise of Emmanuel. And what it is, is God, it's a miracle of God as he declares that this child would be known as Emmanuel, which means God with us. He would be the evidence and the image of God's presence amongst us and his, his moving in our midst. Amazing. And when we heard that, I I just wonder what went through our minds and hearts. Did we hear it with hearts of skepticism, of caution? Did we hear it with disengagement? Did we hear it with that sense of, oh, we've heard this before? Tick, I know this fact. Emmanuel means God with us. Oh, yeah. Did we engage it with our souls? Or was it just something that hit us and bounced off? 
Because friends, when we hear that God, when Jesus, the Son of God, came to save us from our sins, Emmanuel, the proclamation of God's coming to be with us, the fulfillment of that, right? Anything less than rejoicing, anything less than jubilant delight implies that we're still not reading this promise and the declaration that that comes with it with the seriousness that it was written to be read with. And as I reflect on this, it gets me thinking. Imagine if God's love was as big and as great as the scripture promises us that it is, and and yet we spend our whole lives with that sense of caution or or, or skepticism, disengagement, insecurity, fear. We we keep his love at arm's length for our whole lives, and and at the best, you know, we live with little more than our toes dipped in the ocean of his love, right? And, And then we die. Morbid, I know. And at the end of our earthly lives, we come face to face with what's true. We look back and we begin to see the depths that we've missed out on. This love that's been perfectly accessible to us all the days of our lives. And we look back and we we see this peace that we never found ourselves able to truly rest in. The insecurities we often found ourselves lost in that we didn't need to be. All that striving we spent our lives consumed by for fear. And imagine if, if, if we could know now for sure just how rich and wide and deep and high the love of God really is. Imagine if we could accept this free gift of God in a whole new way. And, and, and my final thing I'd say is imagine if this journey could begin in our lives just as soon as we were willing to take God at his word. Because friends, as we engage with scripture today, this is my hope, that we would take him at his word that we would examine the overarching narrative of scripture and we would see, we would hear, and we would grasp the love of God in a fresh and more impactful way. So let's dive in. Let's dive in. We're going to go to Exodus 34, um, verses 6 to 7, and it says this. And he, this is God, he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord. This word is Yahweh. He goes, Yahweh, Yahweh. It means I am who I am. I am who I am. Or, or another way to say it is, or I am consistent with who I am. I am true to myself. I never stop being who I declare myself to be. I am true to myself. I'll always faithfully be who I am. So the Lord, the Lord. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. Everybody say abounding in love. love. You guys don't feel like that's a good thing. Everybody say abounding in love like it's a good thing. Hey, that sounds good. And faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Friends, you ever feel a bit unconfident in God's love? A little bit afraid, a little bit unsure, a little bit like that, that, that what if it's not quite for me though. What if it's not as big as it's promised, though? This bit of text is is all the way back in the second book in the Bible, and it's actually a really significant moment in the story of Scripture. You see, this is the first time that God actually introduces who he is to his people. You see, up until this moment in Scripture, we've had God come to Moses, and God says, hey, I am Yahweh. Remember, that that means I am who I am. And he said, I want you to know that you can count on me. You can be confident in me. I am who I am. And then all the way later, chapter 34, he comes in and he says, now let me tell you who I am, who I'm true to. And this is who he describes himself as, a God that's abounding in love, faithful to his character. I wonder if you were God in this moment, how would you introduce yourself? 
What things would you really want them to know and remember about you? Would you be like, man, these guys, they are a bunch of muppets. I know how much they sin. I know how much they stuff up. I'm going to start with a big loud bang, fire and trembling and fear. I'm going to come in hard. They're going to be terrified, but they're going to live better lives because of it. That's how I'm going to introduce myself. Or maybe you go, no, no, I'm going to be, you know, I I don't even know. That was the only one I could think of. That's probably how I would do it. (laughs) But the way you introduce yourself, it reveals what you prioritize for them to know about you. How you introduce yourself reveals what you believe the most important thing for them to know about you is. And, and this is what God says. He prioritizes the most important thing he, is pe- he believes his people can know about him is that he abounds with love. I don't know if you know what the word abounds means, so I'm gonna really spell it out. Abounds means more than enough. It means he's not running out, he's not running low, he's not like scraping the bottom of the, oh, just enough love for you, okay, here you go. You know, abounds more than enough, that's who our God is. And he's Yahweh. He's still true to himself. He's still the God abounding in love. This is who he is. I am who I am, says the Lord. In fact, on the other end of the Bible, near 1,500 years later, towards the end of the New Testament, Jesus' disciple John writes letters to the church, and he goes ahead and takes this abounds in love idea and, and takes it even further to describe that God not only has a lot of love, but is himself the very embodiment of love. Check it out, 1 John 4.16, it says this, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. God loves not merely by choice, but by nature. Friends, his love isn't limited to a couple of people. It reaches as far as he reaches. Friends, God loving you personally is as stable as God is stable. His love for you is as constant as he is constant. That love, that affection he feels for you is as everlasting as he is everlasting. His love is in scripture from beginning all the way to the end of the book, from that early self-introduction in the book of Exodus to the words of, of his disciple John laid in the New Testament. Every genre, every author, every book, every story, and every verse, it works together to point the, to the love that God has for us. From the opening chapter where God prioritizes rest and feasting for an ex-enslaved people, all the way to the final chapter of the book of Revelation where he promises a day is coming where he will make all things new, all things restored to to the glory of Eden, of wholeness and renewal. Guys, God's love is not some obscure, some only a New Testament, some force to fit. It's not some modern heresy or soft Christianity. His love is the story of the Bible. I wonder, have, have have you seen his love in Scripture? Have you allowed it to sink deep within you? Have you chosen to put your faith in it, in, in, in him? The early church did, and God changed the world through them. This is not some modern idea. They go, jump back to the early 300s. That's a while ago. There's, a, there's a, a preacher, a teacher, a leader throughout the church, and his name is John Chrysostom. I definitely said that wrong. And, and he says this, God does not need us at all and still loves us very much. Let that sink in. He doesn't need us at all, but he still loves us very much. Whereas we, we desperately need him, but we do not accept his love, preferring money and human friendship and physical comfort, power and glory, in spite of the fact that he prefers nothing to us. 
In other words, beyond all sense and beyond all logic, God loves us. And in spite of all distractions and rebellion that we have, still God prefers nothing at all over us. A little while later, the great teacher Augustine, who wrote theologies that shaped verbatim the early church for well over a thousand years, he says it in a nice and simple saying like this. He says, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. In other words, Augustine understood that God's love was as sweeping and as huge as he is, missing no one, but not so large as to be impersonal. His love, it's unique. It's personal to you. It really, really is. God sees you. God knows you. God loves you. That's powerful. And he just so happens to also love the person sitting next to you in exactly the same way and everyone else in the world. And if we jump forward a bit more to the church, we we see one of the most influential preachers of the 1700s, a man that God used to to lead the first great awakening in America, and and a guy who also popularized that hellfire and brimstone message. You know, the the one that gives preachers a bad name for being angry and how could God be loving because he's sending everyone to hell? That line of theology, this is that guy. So surely he doesn't know God's love, right? Well, let's see what he says, Jonathan Edwards. He says, there is such love and such grace in the heart of God, that if you understood the length and breadth and height and depth of it, you would never be discouraged. Not only would you never be defeated, not only would you never be beaten down, not only would you never go through depression, he's saying you wouldn't even be discouraged. And his understanding of God's love pouring out, it's from Ephesians chapter 3, 17 to 19, which says this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Friends, this is a love with a depth that goes beyond the depth of our emotion. It has heights beyond our ability to conceive and think. It is longer and wider than our imaginations could ever conjure. This is the love that God has for us, a love that surpasses our ability to know it. Friends, here's the good news in that. You can relax. You can rest. I know that God's love is a hard thing to perceive. It's a hard thing to believe. It's a hard thing to settle into our souls and really live out of. It seems strange and weird. And and sometimes we walk through life and we go, I'm not even sensing your love. It just seems so far beyond this moment I'm in. And what the Bible is saying is that you're struggling. Your struggle to perceive, to understand God's love isn't happening because it's false or flimsy. It's because it's so grand and so great. We have no frame of reference at all from which we can comprehend it. Wow. God's love, it's not one of the many facets within Christianity. It's it's not a modern interpretation of Christianity. It's not a more digestible gateway into Christianity. God's love is the single facet that begins and ends everything that is Christianity. Our God is a God of love, and he moves in and through and filled with love. To call yourself a Christian, it demands that we believe in the love of God. And friends, if you, if you can find yourselves believing in a God, but you can't believe he loves you, then let me just tell you up front, you're believing in a God that's not found in Scripture. That's not a good place to be. It's not a good place to be. 
See, friends, God's love, it's, it's etched into the fabric of the biblical narrative and Christian history for ages more ancient than the church itself. And this is why we in this church, we, we and most churches, they, they push for regular engagement with, the, with our Bibles. It's not to make God happy. It's not so that he'll be pleased with you or like you more. How, how ridiculous, how absurd. Have you listened to the love of God? Have you heard about that? This isn't so that he might tick some box and say you've done a good job. It's because God's love is etched onto every single page in that book. Read it for yourselves. Be transformed. Get into a small group. Talk about it in community. Come and join us for Alpha. Come and join us for our foundations course. Make this Bible something you witness the love of God in reality day in and day out because he has a love so rich and so deep and so beautiful and so powerful and he wants nothing more than for each of us, you and I, to taste and see the love he has. Our God. Emmanuel, God with us, compassionate and gracious, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness. Come, my friends, search the scriptures and see the love of God for yourselves. There's a prophet in the Old Testament. His name is Zephaniah. And in chapter 3, in verse 17, he says this. The Lord your God is with you. Notice that echo of Emmanuel, God with us, all the way through the Bible. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Friends, there's no doubt in scripture that God's love for us is a deep and personal love. That whoever we are, however sinful, however broken, however distant, however ashamed we feel, however apathetic we feel, however small we might feel. He promises his love, it's still turned towards us. He remains Emmanuel, the God who right now is making moves towards us. What a joy. But perhaps you hear about this love of God. Maybe you wrestle to let it sink in. Maybe it just bounces off you. You just don't get it. How do you believe such a thing? It seems wild, like a fairy tale, so distant from my experience of life. How could I possibly allow such a wild and obscure reality to be something I believe? What if it's not true? Right? Or maybe you do believe it. Maybe you've been to Sunday school, been to church for most of your life. You know the right answers. You can tick the right checkboxes. You know about the love of God. And yet deep in your soul, you feel that kind of storm cloud of slumped shoulders, that, that sense that he loves you so greatly, but you can't escape the fact that you perpetually seem to fail him, don't we all? Still we rebel against him. And deep in our souls, we sense we're held captive by a sense that our God is disappointed in us. Yeah. Anyone else? We're burdened by this sense that God looks upon us with a love that's been marred by shame. This is something I have to walk through regularly. We have an accuser who seeks to come and steal and to kill and to destroy. And I just think the times when I, you know, I finish the day at work, I'm going home, and I just a heads up, working in church doesn't mean you have a deep intimacy with God all the time. And, and so you know, I'm driving home from a day talking about God and writing about God and, and you know, doing all this stuff, and then it suddenly hits me, hey, I haven't spoken to him for a while. And so I go to turn towards him and pray, and immediately I feel these accusations. They're like, hey, really? 4 p.m. and you're only thinking to talk to him now? Well, big lot of love you've got. Do you think he's happy about that? How many sins have you done since you last spoke to him? Have you been paying attention? Do you really think he wants you around right now? Just these, these 
these nuggets, these accusations of, of darkness that just leave, leave me feeling personally just so sinful and too broken to be welcome into that moment with God. And so what do I do? I shut my heart for fear of being rejected. It's one option. Or we face it. I'm going to talk about how in a moment, but we face it by knowing what's true and proclaiming what Scripture does say over it instead of being lost in what the devil twists and warps the ideas of Scripture to say when they don't really say it at all. You know, in the book of Zephaniah, what we read before, uh, God speaks about how he feels about sin. In fact, for the two and a half chapters before what we just read, God's talking about sin and he's, and he's naming countries. And he's declaring over nation after nation the judgment and consequence of the fact that they kept rebelling and rejecting God. And he goes, one by one, each and every nation fails and falls short. And he says, because you haven't trusted me, because you don't know me, this is what comes. This is what happens. Destruction and suffering and pain. Oh, that you would just trust my love. Oh, that you would just follow me. And there's this kind of like wrath that pours out on nations. And then in verse 9 of chapter 3, he calls to all of these people groups again, to every nation, to all the people and he declares his love over them. As though he hadn't just spent the last two chapters saying that, you know, they're so sinful and so dirty. It's as though something had, between verses 8 and verses 9, stepped in the middle and absorbed all of the wrath and all of the justice and all of the due reward that was coming for these nations. And what God does for the rest of this book is pour out love, pour out hope, pour out peace. And instead, and I think verse 17 is just the crescendo of this section, and I'll read it again. He says this, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves you. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. Oh, that Bible-wide promise of Emmanuel, right? Our God still making moves towards us. And yet I, along with so many people I speak to, continue to feel in our souls a sentiment that surely God's love must be running thin. Surely it's limited. Surely it's waning. Surely it must be strained and faltering before the great weight of all of my rejection and struggling. I mean, how many times has he forgiven me? How many times have I rejected him straight afterwards? Sometimes mere moments later. Surely, surely he can't see me as more than a stain. Surely it's a love, but, you know, like the runt of the litter. It's kind of like a love. He has to love me. It's a duty. How painful it is to follow God and yet limit his love to our own understanding of it. How broken, how painful, how wounding it is for our own projection of love to be how we perceive God's love towards us, how we reflect our own meager capacity to love and to care for someone and say, well, God must do the same to us. Or, or, or we measure his love by how lovable we feel and have been by the people around us. How could we ever delight in a God when we take his beautiful love and try and squish it into our own understanding of it? I thank God for Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 to 19. Well, he makes that promise that our, that our love transcends, it goes beyond, it's, it's greater than all knowledge. That it's a love greater than any mind could imagine. 
And I wonder whether we truly grip this today that all of our senses that we have in our souls for what love would look like, God is bigger than it, he is better than it, his love is grander than it. This is the love of God. Do we see a love that's strained or do we believe in a love that's strained and waning and failing? Is this the way Zephaniah 3.17 describes the move of God's love? No. Does he say, you know, hi, I'm God. I suppose I'm going to tolerate you. No. He says, I take great delight in you. Great. No, not just delight. Great delight. Does he say something along the lines of like, yeah, look, I love you, but I don't really like you. Is that what God said? No, he says, hey, listen to me. I could be found rejoicing over you, expressing so much joy, I can't help but sing it out. It reminds me of Elf, if you've ever watched the movie. Like, I'm like, there's such a jubilant joy in God, and he's just crying out over us. He can't help it. He loves us so much. This isn't the language of an exhausted love. This is the language of a honeymoon stage. This is the language of something new and fresh. It's a vibrant and delightful love. And ridiculously, it's a love described for us, for me, and for you. I just wonder, do you you give space and time in your life to hear the love God's singing over you? Do we make a priority every day of resisting the urge to project our own propensity for love unto God? And in the place of this, do we choose to meditate on and allow our heavenly imaginations to envision what it looks like for God's love to be alive and pouring out over our lives? Friends, God is singing a song of delight over you. And it's not in the kind of tame, put together, polite way that we're sometimes singing to him, you know, in worship sets. His is a song of abundant joy, a song of rejoicing. And this is God's disposition towards us. And I wonder, would you make space to hear it in your life? Ephesians chapter uh, 2 verse 4, it says this, but because of his, that is God's, great love for us. God who is rich in mercy. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Notice that Emmanuel imagery again. He picks us up and moves us closer to him, seats us with him in the heavenly realms. Emmanuel, God with us, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Wow. God crafted his scripture so that in it we could see his love throughout it. And he promises that we'll hear his unfailing love as we pursue and spend time with him. We see it, we hear it, but also God calls us to cling to it. He calls us to cling to his love. The Psalm uh, 33 verse 18, it describes clinging with different words, but says it this way. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. Another way to ask what we're clinging to is to ask where do we choose to put our hope? Do we choose to hope in the love of God? Or or, or like that quote before we heard, do do we choose to put our love in in, in friendships, in money, in in ambition, and success in this world? 
Do we live our lives just passively hoping that a day will come where suddenly we wake up and we just believe it? Is that what we're looking forward to? Is that the hope we have? Is that what we're holding on to? That one day I might just get it? Clinging to God's love, it's a hard thing. We're choosing to believe something. We're building our lives on something as though we know it's true, even when it's still only a hope in our hearts. Friends, that's hard. The Bible calls this faith, and it doesn't shy away from the fact that we need faith to live lives with God. But what we're luckily, or what we find we're lucky over is that God didn't leave his love in the mysterious, in the echo of song, in the unknown ethereal realms of hope. God's unfailing love, it broke through. And it has been revealed physically in our world for our lives, something we can literally grasp onto. In fact, when 1 Corinthians introduces love as a thing that is kind, the word it uses literally means an initiated act of goodness. It's this kind of get up and go word. It means to use or to show or to do. And I don't think there's a love that's ever existed that more greatly embodies a get up and go kind of love than the kind of love God has for us. Because his love is something we can cling to. It's a love we can see. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39, it describes the kind of love that God has as this unbreakable, unshakable, unending, and inseparable thing. He uses these words specifically. It says, for I am convinced. I wonder if we could become convinced. I wonder if we could cling with such a strength, such a persistence that we could, like Paul, cry out that we too are convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, nothing in all creation. What a gift, what a love, that there is nothing that exists, nothing that has been created, nothing inside of creation, not our emotions, not our feelings, not our achievements, uh, not the world, not the demons, nothing that can separate us from the love that God has for us. Romans 5.8 actually goes on to say and to display the kind of go, get up and go love God has by saying, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we got up and achieved. Not when we finally cleaned up our mess. Not in that moment, friends. Before we ever stepped a step in line. Friends, before you ever breathed a breath of praise. Before ever you stepped up to trust Him. In that midst of darkness, of rejection. In the midst of our addiction to pleasures, our insecurity, our dependence on ourselves our striving and our clawing in the depths of our sin and our transgression, that's when God got up and came to get us. That's when he came towards us. And why? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it says it this way. It was because of the great love which he has for us, for you and for me. That's what motivated his movement, not to achieve, not to gain. He was motivated by that great love that he has for us. And you might go, yeah, but to what end? What does God want from us? How do we repay him? What is the deal? What is my side of this bargain? And it goes on to say that the reason he did it was that so he can lavish upon us undeserved gifts of kindness, 
not just today, but for all the ages to come. Our God suffered and sacrificed, and his motivation was that he could unveil undeserved gifts of kindness to us. What a God. That's something we can cling to, that our hearts and our minds would turn to this and would hope in it. We could cling to this. This is what God is crying out in Scripture. This is where we see the love of God written out word for word. As we sit in prayer, this is where we hear it. He's singing out in love these amazing words to us. And friends, as we enter the Christmas season, this is why the birth of Jesus is worth our celebration. Because Jesus, our baby, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, the mighty warrior who saves. Jesus, the one who moved in love to, to remove our rebuke, as Zephaniah says it. It was him, Jesus, who, because of the great love God has for us, would begin today, in part today, and in full in a day to come, begin lavishing undeserved kindness over us. Jesus, it was him who would go on to express in ways greater than singing the kind of love God has for us. His song, not a song of words, but a song of sacrifice, where he laid out upon a cross and he he was lifted up for all to see, for all the ways that you and I do, could, and will fail God, that we would be made clean to give it all, to lay it all down, to sacrifice so greatly for no other reason than the riches of his love that we could be with him as he got with us. And he might dote on us. He might delight in us. He might sing with rejoicing over us. And he may unveil his kindness towards us, not just today, but for forevermore. What a God we worship and get to do life with. And this is true. Whether you read the love letter of the Bible or not, whether you make space to hear his song of love or not. Friends, would you cling to the gospel today, that promise of salvation, that Jesus, Emmanuel, the savior of our souls, he will do all the rest. And like those nations in Zephaniah where great destruction was moving towards them, Jesus would step in the gap, step in the way. And all the things that we've done wrong and all the reasons that suffering and pain is owed to us, all the reasons justice is falling on our heads would fall on Christ instead. Totally, completely, entirely, forever. And we would find ourselves safe and saved in the presence of a God who is moving ever closer still. What an abundant love our Father has for us. And what ways have we to respond except worship. What ways have we to respond except for to take the time to see it, take the time to hear it, and make the choice to cling to it even when life seems to say the opposite. Friends, would you join with me in prayer? Almighty God, I just thank you. God, I'm left without words. God, I'm left still in the stagnant um, hardness of my heart, saying, how can this be? How could so great a love, so merciful, so kind, a God, be right there, moving ever closer right now? God, I just praise you right now. I'm reminded of the song we sang where we say, what else have we got but a hallelujah? 
you are beautiful to us. So kind. May your spirit break through our hearts. May you come and just give us a glimpse more of how wonderful and how deep your love is. Every one of us needs that. Maybe in this room with all eyes closed and with all heads bowed right now, maybe in this room you, you've never heard of the kind of love that God actually has for you. You've heard of the, the Simpsons gospel, the Facebook gospel, the gospel of the world, but you've never heard of the Bible's gospel. The gospel that says that God just cares for you. And whilst, yeah, you've stuffed it and you failed, but God cares enough about you to take that from you, to take that for you, and to step in the way and take it on himself. He just loves you so much. And I just want to give you a moment to respond to that love. And the way I invite you to do that is simply by starting a conversation with him. And so if this is something you want to do today, I'm just going to invite you with all eyes closed, with all heads bowed, so as to not make a scene. But I just want to invite you to raise your hands in the air so that I can see if you want to make that decision for the first time. Go ahead and do that now if that's you. Lord, I just thank you. How rich your mercy is. Come and stir us to newfound worship, not just in song, the way you sing over us. But with our whole lives laid down in trust and celebration and peace and in joy. We love you, Jesus. In your perfect name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, why don't we respond the only way we know how? Would you all join me and stand and worship God? Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or connect with us through our Instagram or Facebook page. For more information about Christmas at New Life, head to church.nu forward slash Christmas. We pray you have a great week and a very Merry Christmas. Be blessed.